The book of 1 Corinthians is after Romans, before 2 Corinthians. In my translation, the ESV says, For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? Our Father and God, we thank you for this word. We thank you that um, we have your scriptures which teach us. Things are written for our example. We pray that we would learn from that example this morning. And though this was written many, many years ago to a group of Christians in Corinth, there is wisdom for us in Olathe. Pray that we, you would make your word real to us and provoke us to worship. Pray that you would do the same even in children's church as they gather and fellowship around Scripture, that you would enlighten them by your word. Teach us today, Lord. Keep us in your salvation. To the praise of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated.
Last week I saw online there was a video of the tallest statues in the world that was going around, and it had kind of comparison piece by piece of all the tallest statues around the world. You know, can't explain any more plain than that. And it went from small to big, and it started off kind of relatively, actually surprisingly small, the Great Sphinx in Egypt, which is about 20 meters high. Eventually it moved on after a few to our own Statue of Liberty, with towers over that at about 93 meters high, the tower of the Statue of Liberty. That isn't actually close to the tallest. There's the Ushiku Buddha in Japan, which is 100 meters high, and the Spring Temple Buddha in China that stands at 128 meters high. But the tallest of all statues in the world is the Statue of Unity in India, which stands at 182 meters, about twice the height of the Statue of Liberty. Now, as I was looking at this video of all these impressive statues, I thought, that's a lot of work to put into idols. An impressive amount of engineering, architecture, labor, to go into really what most of them are, which is giant idols that will one day crumble. Now, as we look at those, we, in our context, we wouldn't be tempted to to go down and worship those or bow at the feet of these tall statues, and a lot of them weren't even built for that purpose. They weren't necessarily built with religious reasons per se. So those kinds of idols, and probably the miniature Buddhas that you'll see around various restaurants or buildings or other types of wooden and carved objects, none of us in this room may be tempted to to bow down and worship those or offer sacrifices to them. It's not something we're familiar with in our context. And yet, all of us are prone to idolatry. And we have a warning here in Scripture, in the book of 1 Corinthians, against idolatry. So we have to ask, what kind of idolatry would tempt us? What kind of idolatry must we avoid? That's why Paul writes this in the book of 1 Corinthians. We go through, normally, books of Scripture, letters as a whole, and just work through them just to see what God's Word says to us. And We wouldn't necessarily choose this if I was going to choose... one of the top five things we need to hear, I probably wouldn't go to 1 Corinthians 10 and talk about food sacrifice to idols. It wouldn't be top of mind. But we trust that as God lays out his word, that in every part of it, there's something for us. And there's a warning for us or an encouragement. And we have both here in 1 Corinthians 10. As Paul writes to the people in Corinth to avoid idolatry, he's writing to us. asking us to flee idolatry. So the question I want to ask this morning is, how can we, as Christians, avoid sinful idolatry? That's the question Paul answers as he works through this. He's teaching us how to avoid idolatry, how to flee idolatry. So a question for us is, how can we, as Christians, avoid sinful idolatry? That's the warning all throughout the passage. Verse 7, Paul commands us to avoid idols. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, he says in verse 7. Or verse 14, flee from idolatry. Or verse 20, I do not want you to be participants with demons. So that's his theme throughout all of this. That's the reason Paul wrote this section of 1 Corinthians, is to command us, to encourage us to flee from idolatry. So what exactly is that? What is idolatry? And it looked different in Corinth. In the context of the city of Corinth, there were temples to various gods, pagan gods, Greco-Roman gods. There were temples all over that world. There were, I believe in Corinth, the temple to... Asclepios, the god of healing. 
Around there, there are temples to Apollo, Aphrodite, Dionysus. And at these temples and other places of worship, there are all kinds of social functions would be held. Various social functions from celebrating the birth of a child to a wedding to coming-of-age ceremonies, trade guilds and groups of uh, professional relationships, professional associations would gather at temples. It was just kind of part of the social fabric in the community that was interwoven in. You would participate in social functions at temples or at places of worship. Sometimes the gatherings were explicitly religious. Sometimes they weren't. Sometimes they were purely social. Sometimes they were explicitly religious. We have copies of ancient invitations, like wedding invitations. You are invited on this day to such and such temple, the temple of Asclepios, to worship him and honor him and to celebrate in this manner. We had, there were like wedding invitations that went out to social functions. Come join us. And very often in these gatherings, it might be a family gathering, but at the beginning, and say, okay, we're going to just make a sacrifice to the local God here and ask for his favor, then move on with the rest of their time together. Oftentimes, along with the temples and sacrifices, there was all kinds of sexual morality that happened as part of the religious worship. But it was interwoven into the culture and the fabric of society so that it would be hard to avoid if you were trying to live a normal social, professional life, you would get invited. Friends, family, co-workers, come join us. We're going to have a meal, hang out. We might have a little idle sacrifice in the beginning. So the Christians in that time, knowing they wouldn't want to worship false gods, they still may be tempted or pressured to participate. They might face social pressure or temptation to pleasure, depending on what was happening. And Paul is warning, pleading with the Corinthians to avoid such things. That was what kind of idolatry looked like then, a sacrifice to a local god, How about idolatry now? How might we be tempted to idolatry? Are there ways we might stumble into idolatry? Maybe we won't be invited to make a sacrifice to a pagan god anytime soon. But there are ways in which we might, in our day-to-day normal lives, and I think more and more as the days go on, be invited into or be tempted into a form of idolatry. Let's say at your work, in order to get along with your work, all of your higher-ups and your peers, we're going to go out and we're going to hang out at a place you as a Christian probably shouldn't. And we're going to live a debauched life together, and that's how you get along in this company is take part in what your fellow businessmen and women do in their immoral parties. Are you going to participate in that? Or maybe you have political allegiances, and then those political allegiances start dictating everything in your life and start causing you to take part in things that are contrary to Christ. Though you had affiliation with them, now they're pushing different things that actually are against Scripture and against Jesus Christ. We've seen, I think, politics is the new secular religion of our day. It garners the most animosity, the most uh, trends on social media. That is where people's primary allegiances lie. What is my political affiliation? And we see in churches across our country, on both sides of the aisle, politicians taking pulpits and leading congregations in worship. So that is, I think, the great idolatry of our day, the secretism of political allegiance and faith. And we may be tempted 
And again, so this happens on both sides of the aisle. To follow a political movement and stumble into something that is contrary to Jesus Christ. Maybe you're a group of high school students, and, and as a group of high school students, you and your friends, or your friends pressure you into, we want to have an interfaith prayer time and learn about our faith, and then we're going to pray to our different gods and be accepting and welcoming of all our different faiths together. We're going to practice different forms of worship together. Maybe you're at a wedding, and everyone at the wedding in solidarity with the bride and the groom of a different faith say, we're going to offer up a prayer to a different faith. We want all of you to join in as a show of support to the bride and groom. Maybe to keep your job at work, you're told you can either embrace the current sexual and gender ideology or you're fired. And you have to make a choice. The fact is, more and more we are living in in a post-Christian world and we're going to have more and more opportunities to stumble into worship of false gods. We'll face more and more pressure to leave your distinctive Christianity behind and blend in with the other faiths and other gods around us like sex and politics, money and power. So, I hope you at least have some understanding that maybe this is something, if we're not careful, we could stumble into. So how do we avoid it? We'll walk through the text, we'll ask how can we as Christians avoid sinful idolatry and highlight three ways Paul points out that we can avoid idolatry, which is, the basic definition, the worship of other gods. That's what idolatry is. The worship of other false gods. How do we avoid that? Verse 1 through 5. There's a surprising answer here, actually. As I reflected on this, I was surprised by what Paul says in verses 1 through 5. I'll read it to you. It says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. So here's Paul's first answer, and the question, how do we avoid sinful idolatry? His first answer is, do not presume upon God's saving grace. Do not presume upon God's saving grace. Don't think that just because God has been gracious to you in the past and he has called you out as his people, that you are immune from stumbling. For those of you who follow professional sports, whatever your sport is, you know, basketball, baseball, football, hockey, soccer, whatever it might be, if your sport, if your professional sport has a draft, how many first-round picks never make it to the pros? How many high-end prospects who were drafted high, who had all the status and favor upon them, they were selected to be the best of the best, how many of them never make it? Quite a high amount. Why? Well, it just happens that way. But it teaches us that you cannot presume upon your selection prior. You cannot presume that just because you're selected high that you're going to make it in the end. Just because at one point, one general manager, one team, thought you had the goods, you can't presume upon that and say, well, you'll make it in the pros. You can't presume upon your chosenness. And Paul says the exact same thing to the Christians who are gathered there 
hearing the letter, Israel could not presume upon its chosenness that it would persevere or not stumble in the end. At one point, God drafted the Israelites with saving grace. How did he do it? Well, remember they were in captivity in Egypt. He led them out. How did he lead them out? Pillar, fire, and cloud. He parted the sea. They walked through. The sea collapsed behind them, crushed the Egyptians. And as they passed through the sea, Paul's going to take that watery language and think about Christian baptism and kind of make the connection. He says they were baptized into Moses. Moses was the one to whom the law was given, the covenant. Sorry, new mic. God gave Moses the covenants, contract, makes us a people. They were baptized in that covenant. They became God's people. And then God took them through the wilderness. And what did he do? He fed them. He watered them. He nourished them. Not only physical food, manna, Water, but spiritually. And, and Paul mentions here the rock. How many of you remember Exodus 17? Moses struck the rock. Water flowed out. Gave the people water in the desert. That happened again. Later, Numbers 20. Moses struck the rock again. Wasn't supposed to, but he struck it. Water came out. So, the interesting thing, there's actually Jewish mythology, ancient Jewish scholars held to a belief that the rock actually followed them. That the rock of Exodus 17 and the rock of Numbers 20, which both split, water poured out to feed the people, there is a kind of a religious understanding that that was the same rock. And the rock actually went with them. And Paul, not necessarily believing the myth, but taking that spiritually, says, yes, the rock did follow them. But who was the rock that fed and watered the people? The rock was Christ. This is amazing. Don't lose what Paul's saying here. Don't miss the point. Paul is saying that Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, spiritually nourished the people of Israel all along the way, that that was Christ's work to do that. The one who was born as Jesus, the Son of God, pre-incarnation, pre-birth, the Spirit of God, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, nourished the Israelites all the way through. Meaning, the same person who saves and nourishes us, Jesus Christ, is the one who nourished the Israelites all along the way. They had the same saving grace upon them. And what happened? Still, nevertheless, most of them fell into idolatry. Trivia question for all of you, Bible trivia. How many... Israelites made it from start to finish, exiting Egypt into the promised land. Can you name them? Joshua and Caleb. Those are the two good ones. Everybody else, Moses himself, was disciplined and did not make it to the promised land because they fell into idolatry. So here's what Paul's saying to us. They also were spiritually nourished by Jesus Christ, who is the rock, and yet 
most of them. Notice how many times he says, all had the same spiritual drink. All, all, all. And they all experienced God's saving grace and bringing them out of Egypt. Yet most of them fell into idolatry. It is a warning. Do not presume that just because God saved you and called you out that you are immune from stumbling into idolatry. There's a book on my shelf called Dangerous Calling, written by Paul Tripp, wonderful book, and it's on the spiritual dangers in leadership and how when you're leading God's people spiritually, there's all sorts of snares that can pop up. And on the back of the book, there are endorsements from five spiritual leaders, three of whom have fallen or even walked away from the faith. So on the back of the book, about falling away, three out of five fell away. And I keep that before me as a warning, as an illustration. Don't presume. Don't presume I'm strong. I would never fall into sin. I would never make that mistake. Don't presume that just because you have not been disciplined yet that you won't be. And some of you may be in practices of sin and thinking, you know what, God hasn't done anything yet. I must be good. Don't mistake God's patience for his approval. There may be discipline coming. It's why we are called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. You are saved, but work it out. Work into it. That's why Paul says in verse 12, Let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Peter will tell us the the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. So take heed. Keep worshiping. Don't neglect his word. Don't neglect fellowship with his people. Keep watch over your life and your doctrine because none of us are above great error. Do not presume upon God's saving grace. That's the first lesson. Second lesson comes from verses 6 through 13. Verses 6 through 13, I'll read those. Now these things took place as, an examples, or as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. So here Paul calls us to learn from the examples of Israel's idolatry. Learn from their example. There's a phrase, those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. Learn from the history of Israel so that we may not repeat it. Some will say that experience is the best teacher. I would say others' experience is the best teacher. How many of you are younger younger siblings here? Don't tell this to my older siblings. I'm the fifth out of six. Not that part. But what I did growing up is I watched them and said, oh, I'm not going to do that. If you're a younger sibling, you know this. You can watch the mistakes of your elders and say, oh, I saw how mom and dad responded to that. I'm going to learn. Because here's the reality. You, you don't have to do the dumb things other people do. This is, I don't know if you know this. This is true. 
I think maybe this is, if I can say it even, part of God's grace in YouTube and TikTok. Watch other people do dumb things and laugh, but don't emulate. Learn from the example. You actually don't have to touch the hot stove to know that it's hot. Learn from the examples of others. That's what he calls us to do as we look at Israel. All these things and all these judgments of God upon Israel, the discipline upon them, it happened for them, for their holiness and for their own relationship with God. It was part of God shaping and molding them. It happened for their holiness. It was written for our holiness. It occurred for them, but God wrote it down for us as a gift that we might learn from it. So when we look at Exodus 32, as God gives the covenant to Moses on the mountain at Sinai, and what are all the other people doing down below? Eating and drinking, and as the text says, they rose up to play. That rose up to play is a euphemism. They played not with kids play, but adult kind of play, sinful play. Use that as a warning. Even as God's grace is shining down upon Israel, giving the law, they had just been saved out of Egypt and immediately turned to idols. That's a warning. Learn from the warning that happens in Numbers 25 when over 20,000 of them are put to death because they committed sexual immorality. The men married women who worship false gods, and particularly false god known as Baal, and as they turned to idols, God destroyed them. Look to the incident in Numbers 21 where the people complained and grumbled against God and God sent serpents. The text says that they put God to the test. They put Christ to the test. And you know what that is, putting somebody to the test. Again, kids, they do this. This is how they learn. They put parents to the test. What can I get away with before there is a reaction? That's putting to the test. I'm going to test the limits of this household, test the limits of the school, test the limits of this play place, wherever it is. I'm going to just test and see where the boundaries are. What can I get away with before discipline comes? That's what Israel was doing in the wilderness. How much idolatry can I get away with before God responds? And eventually God responded. They grumbled and complained, saying they'd rather be in Egypt. Back there, there was comfort and food and water, and here God's leading us around, grumbling and planning against God until eventually God disciplined. These things are written down for our instruction that we might not fall. And here's the good news. God doesn't just give a warning. He also gives a way out. Look at verse 13 in your own Bibles. God gives us the means and the ability to flee from sin and idolatry. Verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. This is encouraging news for those who are beaten down by sin stuck in sinful behaviors, here's the encouraging news. 
You're not alone. There is nothing you're experiencing that isn't common to humanity. You do not have a rare medical condition that no one could diagnose and doctors cannot treat. Some of you have had that experience where you have something going on with you and you're not sure what it is and doctors can't figure it out and you keep going in for more tests and more visits. But with all of our science and medicine, doctors still are having trouble. If you've had that experience, you know how discouraging that is. Because if you can't diagnose it, you can't find a cure. And you feel hopeless because you're just stuck in whatever this ailment is. And here's the good news. Your sin is not a rare disease. It is common to everybody. You do not have a distinct medical condition that nobody knows how to deal with. You're a sinner. And that's common to everybody. And because it's a common disease, the remedy is known and available. So there's bad news in that. It means that when you fall into idolatry, when you sin, that's on you. It's because your heart wanted it, because your heart desired it, Even though there's a remedy that's known, there's a cure, you wanted the sin. So that's what that tells you about your own heart. When you fall into idolatry, you can't look around and say, man, I was helpless in this. No, God provided help. You chose it. Especially if you are in Christ, you have all the means available to you to avoid sin. But you chose it out of your own sinful hearts. So it's on you. But the good news is that the remedy is really easy. The remedy is plain, the remedy is known, the remedy is turning to Christ and following him. Your heart desired idolatry, he is the cure for everybody. Worship the Lord. Retrain your heart. Your heart might desire sinfulness, idols. The remedy to that is retraining your heart in the gospel. Here's where I'm going to go, just classic preacher. Read your Bibles. Worship Jesus Christ. Gather with his people. Do good, God-given things that cause your heart to rejoice. James tells us that every good gift is from above. God gives an incredible amount of good gifts to his kids to enjoy. Food, friends, music. Serve. Serve others. These are all things that retrain your heart towards worship and to enjoying God and his people. As you do these things more and more, by God's grace, you will find your desire for sin to be lessened. What's a great way to keep weeds out of your lawn? Grow healthy grass, right? Cultivate good soil. Same thing with people. How do we lessen our desire for sinful things, for idolatry? Worship properly. Enjoy the good gifts God gives his people, his word, his scripture, his son. As your cup is full of those things, it will not desire false things.
God gives his people a way to avoid idolatry. And I think it's particularly in worship, and that flows into our last point in verses 14 through 22. As we learn from the example of Israel's idolatry, instead of turning to idolatry, turn towards worship of the Lord, finding satisfaction in him, you'll find that you can't do both at the same time. You can't worship the Lord and commit idolatry at the same time. Verses 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So in all those words that Paul is talking, the actual point of it is really simple. His point is honor your union, your union with Christ's body. Honor your union with Christ's body. You are joined together with the Lord and his people, particularly in the table of fellowship, communion. As you celebrate communion together, you will participate in Christ and are united together. If you honor that fact, you will not fall into idolatry. In fact, you cannot. Uh, so you know the power of Fellowship and belonging. Kids who are in school, who do you eat lunch with? You want to eat lunch with your friends, the people you like, because you like eating with them, and there's that fellowship there. How many of you like being alone during lunchtime? (laughs) Some of us are introverts, and that's a good thing, and I understand that we need... Most of the time we want to be with other people. We don't want to be left alone. In fact, one of the most powerful things you can do is when you see somebody alone, say, hey, couldn't you come eat with us? Extend a loving invitation. Come, partner with us, have fellowship with us. When we gather together, we eat together, there's a certain belonging that happens. We're saying we belong to one another. We're united together as we eat. And that is more true as we worship. It's why Paul is so strong here with the Corinthians saying, flee from those meals where you offer sacrifices to idols. Don't participate in that because you're showing you are participating with them in their idolatry. So flee from that and said, participate in the meal that we have. And what are we doing as we eat that meal? We are proclaiming faith. When we take communion together, we are worshiping and you also are preaching. You're confessing faith as you take communion. You're confessing that we are made one by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, a body broken on the cross, receiving the penalty that was due to us for our sins. He died in his body for us, and we take the bread remembering that, united in that belief. And in the cup, we remember that his blood was spilled, shed for us, that we, though sinful and stained, are washed clean and forgiven by his blood spilled. 
And we confess that truth and that faith as we eat together. We confess that we belong together, that though we are many, we are one body, that in reality, the this body that we call the body of Christ, Christians, is the most diverse body that ever existed. That spans men and women, rich and poor, eastern, western, ancient, modern. All kinds of people throughout history have been joined together in one body, united together under the banner of Jesus Christ and his broken body and shed blood. And when we take communion, we say, I believe that. And I belong to that. And as an aside, it's why I would say, if, if you don't believe that, don't feel pressured into taking it. Because faith that's coerced isn't genuine faith. We want everybody who goes to the table to do so with integrity, saying, this is what I believe, because that's what you're doing. You're saying, I believe this and I'm participating with this group of Christians, and I believe I'm saved by the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and I belong to these people. So we never coerce somebody to come to the table, never pressure anybody. We invite. But if it's not what you believe, they wouldn't coerce you into it. We want your faith to be genuine, for you to make that proclamation with integrity, because as you take communion, you are making that confession. Which is why it would be totally incongruent for you to make that confession and also participate in sacrifice to idols. Can't do both. So as we take communion, gather together, we are reminded to flee from any other kind of worship, from idolatry. Not because, you know, as Paul says, the food that they sacrifice has any power, and not because the idols that they worship are magical or powerful, but when others participate in idolatry, their hearts offer worship to demons, to false gods. And we don't participate in the worship of demons. So, we don't, interact in interfaith prayer services because we don't participate in the worship of demons. And we don't march at parades that espouse another religion because we don't participate in the worship of demons. That's why Christians have historically been careful not to be driven by political affiliations and parties. That's why Karl Barth and many others made the Barman Declaration that we are not going to go along with the German church because we will not be led along by false political leaders. We have a king to follow. That's why we don't get involved in spirituality as outside of Christ and don't participate in other religious services, worshiping other gods. That's why we keep ourselves from sexually immoral gatherings, even if it's accepted by the people we work with. It's why I would tell missionaries to be careful about what you participate in as you're trying to win others to Christ. And Paul is serious that we as Christians have an obligation to maintain a kind of holy distinctiveness from the world around us. And you say, that sounds really rigid and that sounds exclusivistic and it sounds like you're calling us to be what? Fundamentals to just withdraw from the world? And I would say, well, yeah, in some ways, yes. We are 
to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to be stinked. We are to be holy. And I would say that the problem of the modern Christian church is not that we look totally different from the world. The problem of the modern Christian church in America is probably that we are not distinguishable from the world. We ought to look different. And there are times when our Christianity will make things uncomfortable in our social lives. Paul's saying to the Corinthians, you're going to have to flee from this, and it's going to make things uncomfortable from time to time. But we are called to do the same. Why? Because we don't put Jesus Christ on the same level as demons. And we are careful about our worship. Because when we practice in worship of anything else, we say that some other false thing is just as worthy of our devotion as Jesus Christ. And Paul reminds us that God is a jealous God and we are not stronger than him. And some in Corinth would say, oh, it's okay, I'm strong. I'm strong in my faith. I, I know that this sacrifice, it's not really worshiping anything. I, I know what my faith believes. I'm strong enough in my faith and, and I know that I won't be corrupted by that. I'm, I'm strong. And Paul's saying, are you stronger than God? We know this argument wouldn't work in our own marriages. Don't worry, hon. All those women that I'm texting, I'm strong. No. My wife would rightly say, that makes me uncomfortable. Don't presume upon your strength. God's saving grace. Learn from the examples of others. Honor your union in marriage and your union with Christ's body, solely devoted to him. We are to be a bit exclusivistic in our worship to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we can be totally inclusivistic as we invite everybody to come and worship our King. Because in the one body, there are many, many from across time and space who come to worship God and Jesus Christ. We're united to them. So flee from all others. Do you pray with me? Father, it's a sobering text before us this morning. It's a, it's a warning, it's a caution. Let us heed it as such. Help us to feel, I don't know, the sting is the right word, but maybe just the seriousness of it. And Lord, help us celebrate your grace to know that your son died on our behalf. We are washed clean by his blood. We are kept by grace in Jesus Christ and help us to work that out with fear and trembling, never wavering from our allegiance, our sole allegiance to your son as king and help us to walk in wisdom in the pagan world around us for you and your son are worthy of our praise. Amen.